It is all about, uh, all about kings this morning. I don't know. You tell me what that is. <laughs> hey, thanks, Jake. Whatever you did, appreciate that. No, I prefer not. I keep <laughs> rhythm myself. Uh, yeah, it is all about kings today. Uh, we end by saying, let the king, uh, the king of our hearts, uh, be the wind inside our sails. Uh, it's all about kings and fake kings. And uh, the kings of our hearts, uh, the kings on the throne. I was... Um, I was watching last night. Uh, my family went over to the Eretz house, and um, we little little Christmas Christmas movie night, and um, we watched, of course, the uh, the the classic, the traditional, uh, one of the best Christmas movies ever, um, Elf. I don't know if you've ever seen Elf <laughs> or not. It's a classic, um, at least a classic of my generation. And there's this one scene in uh, there's this one scene in the movie Elf where you know Buddy the Elf he's working at this uh, department store and so excited that Santa is going to come Santa's going to be there but when Santa gets there um, it's not exactly the Santa that Buddy had had in mind because you know Santa is you know Santa and he deserves honor and he deserves um, he, he deserves respect. And any imposter that sits in Sa- on Santa's throne um, deserves to be or needs to be ousted. And, uh, and so Buddy took it upon himself to, in front of all of the kids there at the department store that night, um, tell Santa that he smelled like beef and cheese. And then he sat on a throne of lies. And then he pulled Santa's, um, he pulled some of Santa's costume off. And um, it's a funny movie. I think most of you have probably seen it and know at least about it. Um, but it kind of does resonate uh, both with uh, the scripture that we're going to be dealing with t- this morning, Matthew chapter 2. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Matthew chapter 2, um, but uh, it's, a, it's a, um, a principle or a truth that is not just applicable to Christmas time, uh, and not just applicable to Matthew chapter 2. This is probably, um, I, would, I was actually f- kind of fighting with the Lord about this this week, um, because... <laughs> Uh, the Lord won. Uh, um, I was kind of fighting with him about this this week because it seems like uh, it seems like a principle that is, I, I want to say, almost too basic. Like, well, all right, I, Lord, can I really have something a little bit, maybe just a little bit more insightful, or creative, or inspired than preaching about? And it feels like, again, 
and again and again and again and again and again the lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, because it seems like it can be just this, this to- even this theological topic or this, um, you know, this scriptural theme that we talk about um, and maybe uh, never really either seek to understand or uh, try to understand how the lordship of Jesus, either in a negative way or in a positive way, um, is like at the top of the waterfall of our spiritual lives. And everything flows over it and down uh, upon us. The lordship of Jesus Christ. And when we say the lordship of Jesus Christ, the word or the term Lord is not just another name for Jesus. It's not just like a, a nickname that we give to Jesus. The, the term Lord is actually a, it's a title. Um, and uh, it meant or it means, if you think of like uh, history lessons from, uh, from high school, you would have these feudal manners or areas and over that area there would be the lord of the manor right and the lord of the manor was not god like we like we think of the word lord today the lord of the manor was simply the one in charge of everything the buck the buck stopped with them and there was no one higher and no one more important and no one more prominent in that area than the Lord of the manor. So when we talk about the Lordship of Jesus Christ over our lives, we're not just talking about a title for Jesus that helps us to remind or helps to remind us that he's God, but we're actually talking about like the the specific ways in which Jesus is um, ruling over us. It's not a it's not a popular it's not a popular thing I mean in terms of like um, uh, maybe our, our, our modern world right? it's not it's not popular to say or to live or um, or to have any other uh, any other feeling or thought other than um, I run me you know, we live in a very individualistic society, right? Everyone is an individual, and everyone has their own rights, and everyone has their own opinions, and everyone has their own, um, their own dreams, and everyone has their own vision, and everyone has their own goals. And um, I am the captain of my ship. I am the master of my soul. And there... Um, there possibly could not be a thing that is more antithetical to the Christian faith than I am the captain of my ship, I am the master of my soul. Because we do not live as isolated people with our own purpose, our own goals, our own vision, our own existence. We live 
by faith in Jesus Christ under his lordship. We don't make the rules. We don't, we don't set the, the, the playing board of life, the game board of life. And, and so as I was arguing with the Lord about Matthew chapter 2 and the story of Herod and the, the king and thinking last night and the, sitting at Corey and Brianne's house thinking about how um, Buddy um, walks up to this, this imposter Santa and says, you sit on a throne of lies. You sit on a throne of lies. I was like, man, why did I need to watch Elf? to come to this like strong theological conviction about how when we sit on the throne of our own lives we sit on a throne of lies we're we're imposters we're we we play king we play king over ourselves but we're not um herod uh, we're going to talk a little bit about King Herod today, okay? So if you have your Bible and you're open to Matthew chapter 2, uh, I'm going to read a little bit about Herod's story. Starting in verse 1. after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod Magi or wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and asked where where is the one who has been born King of the Jews Uh, we saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him when King Herod heard this he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with them and when he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law he asked them where the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem in Judea they replied for this is what the prophet was has written but you Bethlehem in the land of Judea uh, land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, I'll make a careful search for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, They went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when the star, or when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. And they opened their treasures, or they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route.
when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And so he got up. He took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. And when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Maybe a little side note there to that uh, to this reading and to what we have to talk about this morning. Isn't it amazing sometimes? It, I mean, I, I would say it's amazing to me, I should say, um, the lengths that we go uh, to avoid the thing that God is doing in our lives. The, 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 length, the, the length and breadth and depth that we will go um, to avoid the things that God wants to do and is doing. Herod uh, had no other thought in his mind other than to retain his place on the throne. And there was almost no length that he was willing to go to to maintain Herod's lordship over Herod's kingdom. Herod um, was the he was he was backed by the Roman Empire, which means he had the approval and the leadership, I guess you would say equity or power to lead over this area known as Judea. Um, now, the area of Judea was mostly Jews. That's where the Jews lived. But most of the Jews living under Herod's rule uh, did not consider Herod to even be 100% Jewish. Uh, Herod came out of a line of descendants that, that traced their lineage back to not Jacob, father of many nations right? but his brother Esau they were called um, idiomites and, and Herod's lineage was traced not to Jacob but to Esau and so um, several generations down the line Esau's descendants or, or Herod's descendants converted to Judaism they weren't born into Judaism. And so when a guy like Herod comes on the scene and takes the throne as the king or the ruler of, um, of Judea, the ruler of the Jews, it was seen by most Jews as kind of like um, a puppet king. He's not really the king. He's not even, he's not even a real Jew. Um, and you know what happens with people who are already on the edge of not being stable and you tell them what they're not? What do they do? They become even more the thing 
that you're telling them that they are not because they have no capacity to self-regulate. It's a deep-seated insecurity. Well, you're not. You're not really the king of the... Well, I'll show you. And so Herod went on these really um, uh, brutal campaigns of basically snuffing out any and all Jewish people who did not either submit to his rule or see him and worship him as king and, in essence, Lord. But he also did things that would, that would seek to establish himself as um, a real, good, um, pious, God-fearing Jewish king and man. So he went, um, he went on, a, uh, on a campaign to rebuild the temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians. He, um, he would build fortresses of Jewish military might. He was really, really into architecture. He was really, really into infrastructure. Uh, much of what remains of the ancient cities of Jerusalem and the areas around Judea were from the time of Herod, Herod Antipas. And so it wasn't as if he was just just some maniacal ruler who wanted to destroy everything that was Jewish. He wanted to be remembered as a great king. He wanted to be remembered as a great man. But he led and he lived in this constant state of paranoia, in this constant state of, um, of anger, this constant state of Seeking power and taking it when it wasn't given to him willingly. He even went so far as to have his second wife and one of his sons um, executed because he saw them as threats to the throne. The lengths that we go to to maintain, uh, to retain lordship over our own lives. It's astonishing sometimes. Um, so when you consider who Herod is, who, Her who the Herod of history was, um, that he came to the throne, uh, he came to the throne by way of violence by way of deceit. He defeated the Hasmonean kings and the Hasmonean dynasty that was ruling before him. He took the throne by military power and then convinced the Roman government to back him as the new king. It's, it's no, it should be no surprise that the way in which Herod gained the throne is the same the way in which he maintained the throne. By power, by might, uh, by violence. This is an important, um, this is an important message for us, or important, I think, principle to, for us. Um, we don't always, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not really excited to do to, to endeavor on the task of comparing myself, or any of you, or any of us with Herod. Um, but there are uh, 
all their, you know, the human heart is the same. It was the, it was the same in the first century as it is in the 21st century. The, the human heart, Scripture says, is uh, vilely and fully deceitful and wicked. I'm, I'm, a, I'm generally a, a good person, right? Right? Do good things. I have good, good, good thoughts. Well, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna stand up here and argue with the fa- with whether or not you are good or I am good or anyone is good. I don't need to argue with it because when you're honest with yourself, you know it to be true, right? There is something really messed up inside each of us. There is something horribly, horribly wrong here. And we, we try to put the pieces of our lives back together all the time and we try to make it all make sense and we try to be whole and we try to be good, right? We try to do everything right, right? And then the, the darkness of our hearts, the darkness of our soul rears its ugly head again, maybe in a moment but maybe in a season, and we come to the realization once again that on our own, we are not good. In fact, there is nothing good inside of us except Jesus. Nothing good inside of us except Jesus. And so the, the task of comparing ourselves to Herod, while, while maybe a little embarrassing at times, maybe the comparison is, Embarrassing because it's so close to being true. And what I see in Herod is that um, whatever way he gained the throne was going to be the same way that he maintained his power. And how I see that in my own life is sometimes I, I try to convince myself or fool myself that if I just get to this next natural step of life, then I will then do things differently than I have before. Well, you know, it's just kind of a difficult season, and it's not really ideal, but if I could just get over this hump, right? Just need this little push, and then when I get there, then... You know, I'll kind of change my ways. I maybe think a little bit differently, and I'll have I'll be in a better place, and so everything will be uh, will be better. I promise. Um, you know that the way that you do anything is the way that you do everything. The way the way that you do anything is 99.9% of the time the way you do everything. And so if you gain the throne by violence, you're going to maintain the throne by violence. And, and, and I don't want to fall into the trap of believing that, that somehow I just need to get to the next step of life. You need to have that relationship or that job or live in that neighborhood or have this salary or have this many kids or do this or retire or that or do this 
and, and then life, I can kind of rearrange life and really kind of change the person that I am. Listen, if you don't get there like that, you won't stay there like that. And we see that in Herod's life. We see that the way that Herod did anything was the way that Herod was going to do everything. Why? Because it wasn't about him having to get to the throne and then being able to um, change the way he was going to live in order to now, okay, I've, I've murdered and killed and executed people to get here, but now that I'm here, I'm going to be a good king, a loving king, a compassionate king, a servant-hearted king. And, and trust me when I say um, that God is no fool. God is no fool. And, um, and the, ways, the ways in which we achieve the things that we want in our hearts will stick with us even when we land in that spot. And if we don't, if, if our if our posture about life is not a posture of humility and repentance and surrender and the lordship of Jesus over the lordship of Herod, um, we will never win that battle. Because God is not a fool. He will not be mocked. Scripture says that we reap what we sow. Um, so, in the midst of the story, what we see here is that um, Herod doesn't just stay by himself. He's approached by um, these magi or these, um, these wise men, these foreigners. It says in verse 2, uh, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, uh, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Uh, these, these, uh, these people were foreigners. Now, we don't know how many there were. All of our nativity scenes have how many? Three. And we think, well, there must be three because there was three gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So there were three wise men. We don't know how many there We don't know how many there were. Um, we know that there was some people from a foreign place who heard, um, who heard and discerned God and, and, and followed God's lead to the place of worship, uh, to the place of Jesus' feet. What we do know is that they were not Jewish. They did not... Um, they did not... Uh, necessarily spend their lives looking for the Jewish Messiah. It says they were from the east. They were foreigners. They were on the outside. Outsiders. This is a, it's inter- kind of an interesting phenomenon. We have um, we it, insiders. We get kind of like some form of Stockholm syndrome, right? We get. We get so close to ourselves and we get so close to the things that are around us and the things that are ours that we, that we don't often see them 
for what they really are. Right? Maybe it's because we're, so, you know, if I take my Bible, I can read it if it's out here. I'm getting, oh, I don't even want to tell you about. You, you think my beard was gray and I had to shave it off? My eyes are, but, so I can read it if, if, if it's out here, right? If it's a reasonable distance away, but the closer and closer and closer and closer and closer I get to it, it just, it's just a blur, right? And sometimes you need to create a little bit of separation from something in order to be able to see it for what it truly is, right? And, and, the, um, and it seems like the Magi here had this, um, whether it was complete spiritual discernment from the Lord, I think there's a case can be made for that, or if because they were outsiders to the Jewish faith, because they had no allegiance to this guy, King Herod, right? They were simply discerning, believing, walking what they thought was like, hey, the, 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 the king, man, we can go see him, right? It seems like they had a really um, no BS view on what was going on. Because just look at, um, look at, look at how uh, look at how this happens. Outsiders have this incredible way of seeing past the facades of our lives to see how things really are. In verse 2, these people from outside of um, everything that Herod knew, they, I, I just imagine, they walk into... Um, Herod's palace, right? And they walk up to the throne and here is this guy sitting on the throne and maybe he's wearing a crown but I'm sure he's dressed very nice and I'm sure he's got all of these servants around him and, and people tiptoeing around doing whatever Herod wants whenever Herod wants it, right? And these guys who have like, they don't care about anything other than finding Jesus, say, uh, excuse me, uh, man sitting on the throne uh, with the crown and all the servants in, in this big uh, palace-like structure, um, could you tell us where we could find the king? And they were either like just totally um, like super, super sarcastic about it or maybe just completely blind to it, or maybe just like so enamored with the reality that the king was born and that they had gifts to give him and that they were wanted to go find a place of worship at his feet, that they didn't care what Herod was gonna do. This was what they were, this is this was their path. Now Kind of uncharacteristically for Herod, he didn't have them immediately like snuffed out. Maybe, maybe a little strategically so, right? Um, yeah, I, what? When you find him, you let me know, and um, so because I want to come and worship this king. What uh, was going through Herod's? mind. I don't think um, anyone here 
or there believed that Herod really wanted to go worship the king, right? Because why? Well, because the way you do anything is the way you do everything. And Herod killed and executed and deceived his way to the throne, and he wasn't about to give it up in a moment of, oh, oh, the king's here? Oh, oh a baby? Oh, born in a mate? Oh, okay. Well, I'll just step away now. All yours. Um, the thing that the, the Magi did or the wise men did in this moment is that they reminded Herod of who he wasn't. They let all of that insecurity, but all of that truth boil to the surface of Herod's life. Herod was not king. Herod certainly wanted what the Magi were there uh, to give to Jesus. He wanted that for himself. He wanted to uh, experience that type of um, honor, that type of, uh, that type of glory, that type of, that type of worship. He wanted those things. But uh, Herod was not the type of king uh, that Jesus was. Uh, Jesus wasn't at all kingly uh, in the classic sense of the word or in the, in the way in which we think of kings. You know, we think of kings when we get the word picture of the three wise men walking into this big room and sitting on a throne and gold, um, you know, gold crown and flowing robes and servants and grapes everywhere and, you know, two ladies fanning him and all of this crazy stuff. Right? You think of a king in like these, these types of terms and, and Jesus took on a completely different posture of what it meant to be a king. Right? You ever see the movie Aladdin? Old Disney movie. Right? Yes? No? Maybe so? Alright. And when uh, Aladdin had a wish, right? And one of his wishes was that he wanted to be a prince because he wanted to be able to, to court this um, princess Jasmine. And, and so uh, the genie um, made him a prince and as he was um, and, and, and so on his way to court this princess Jasmine you see the pomp and circumstance of what it means to be true royalty right riding on the back of elephants in this long procession and people um, yelling and screaming and we're throwing money and throwing food and and being so excited and just this grand spectacle of, of royal procession. Like, yet that's what a king should be. That's what a leader is. That's the type of person that we want to worship. That's the type of person that we want to follow. Right? And that's what Herod had in his mind, and I'm, I'm certain that's what most of us have in our mind when we think about leaders and we think about kings and we think about people who have authority and people who who are who are important and in places of of position and leadership and 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 instead of playing into everything that the world believes a king should be and look like and do it's like god took the whole thing and like a like a bully shaking a kid upside down right completely turned it upside on its head. Because when Jesus came into his royal city, 
right, at the end of his life? Did he come with a huge grand procession on the back of elephants and with, um, with, with this like announcement of him as king? Uh, he chose um, a slightly less regal animal to ride on the back of. He chose a donkey. Not really the valiant steed that you would, I think of like the donkey from Shrek. You know? I don't know what it is with the movie references today, but, um, yeah, oh, yeah, kids, right? Um, he chose the don- he chose a donkey, and and in his birth and in the story of Herod, um, how did how did Jesus come on the scene? Did the the clouds split apart, right? And the bright light shines down and, and descending on the clouds in bright flowing robes and with, with power and with might and with pomp and circumstance to Jesus show up on the scene and say, I will now start my ministry. No, because it would have been like completely 100% obvious, right? And it would have given everyone um, this picture of the character and nature of the God that we serve. But who Jesus came as, how Jesus came, um, is indicative both of who God is, but who God is calling us to be. As leaders, as servants, as um, humble people, we have our idea about what is kingly and what is not. Kingly for us is Herod. Kingly for God is um, the humility of an unwed mother. The humility of no room in the inn. I guess I'll be born in the stable. The humility of not being born to someone already in politics or powerful, but being born to someone of low social status, low economic status, like a carpenter. God's desire was for his heart to be revealed, not just in the life of Jesus, but in the way in which Jesus came. Humbly, as a servant willing to sacrifice what he deserved in order to, sh- to teach us. I think one of the things that um, was most, is most pointed or prominent here is that the idea... Um, the idea of anyone in your life being your king other than you scares the crap out of you. The idea that anyone has control over Cameron 
the nature of his relationships, what he does with his resources, what he does with the, the gifts that God has given him, um, how he interacts with other people. Well, I really would like to tell that person uh, what I think of them or give them a piece of my mind, right? We, we, think of, we think of lordship in the big instances, right? There's little small daily everyday instances where the guy cuts me off and I'd really like to tailgate him, right? And flash my lights at him and, and do all of these things that like our heart, right? Our heart immediately reveals itself. Like, maybe I, maybe I am still trying to be king over my own heart. Maybe, maybe, my, maybe, my, maybe my version of of, of kingship is one of power and one of authority and one of um, and one of position, right? And so maybe like maybe like Herod, we're all just so afraid of what it means to be completely abandoned to the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. It's much more comfortable for me to be my own king. It's much more comfortable for me to, to blaze my own trail or to have my own feelings or to have my own thoughts, do the things that I want to do, be in the relationships that I want to be in, make the money the way I want to make the money, have the plans the way that I want to have the plans. But you know what I find maybe even more um, more pronounced than uh, like most Christian people saying, well, yeah, no, I'm in charge of my own life. I, no, it, I don't see a whole lot of people who are at least are honest with themselves in church or who ascribe to faith in Jesus Christ saying that. Right? Because it's not, not popular in Christian circles to be like, yeah, Jesus, Jesus is not Lord of my life kind of have my own way of doing it and uh, I think he's cool with that no one says that but what we do is um, we kind of we kind of hide our our unwillingness to let Jesus be Lord of our lives um, by by serving these other puppet kings like our job. Or, or, or maybe even more pronounced for, I guess, my stage of life is that, um, uh, yeah, um, Jesus isn't my Lord. My kids are my Lord. Because all of my life revolves around them. Right? My whole schedule. All my finances. Right? We, we live where, where it's good for them. And we do what's good for them. And we're, we, we give them all of these experiences and all of these social environments because it's what's good for them. And, and, and all of life revolves around what's good for our kids. Because, because no one has the guts to say, oh, oh, whose throne are you worshiping at? Like, 
Jesus is still Lord even though you have kids. Jesus is still king. You don't serve your kids well by putting them before Jesus. You put them in harm's way. Because every time we put an idol in the place where Jesus belongs, you know what God does to that? He tears it down. Every time our, every time our marriage becomes more important than our relationship with God, right, our marriage is in danger. Every time, um, every time our, our job becomes more important than our relationship with the Lord, our job is in danger. Every time, every time our children become the priority of our life and our schedule and our money and our emotions and our time and our everything, that's danger. Because there is... You've seen a throne, right? How many, how many people get to sit in it? There's no such thing as a two-seater. Right? A throne is for one. And so, it becomes, we don't, like I said, we, we almost never come right out and say, well, yeah, no, Jesus isn't really my Lord. Because I got kids, you know. And got to get him to soccer. We, we, almost never, we almost never say Jesus isn't my Lord, but we do set up all of these, pup, these straw man lords and, and hide behind the, the things like, well, God really wants me to provide for my kids, and so I've got to do this, and I've got to do that. That's crap. dangerous it's dangerous really dangerous um, so while this while this passage in Matthew chapter 2 is about Herod okay and that's kind of the focus here what's really uh, what what stands out here is that there's a really stark comparison between the wise men and Herod. There's this really like, they couldn't be um, more completely different. And um, if you look at what they did, verse 9 is where we're going to be. After they had heard the king, Matthew chapter 2, verse 9, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them. Until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and 
presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When we um, you know that worship worship is the door that we walk through in order to hear the voice of God like, I'm not hearing the Lord I don't know what the Lord wants me to do I don't feel like I have a connection with God um, he's just kind of like the man upstairs. I don't, I don't feel him. I don't hear him. It's, it's difficult for me to understand what he wants me, what he wants me to do. And it seemed like the opposite was true for the wise men. It's like, oh, there's a star. It must be leading to Jesus. Here we go. Right? There was this sense that there was this real, there was this real like obvious sense that that they were being that they had absolute confidence in um, God's direction for them God's God's path for them they weren't questioning it they weren't doubting it at all and all of that all of that like confidence all of that direction came on the heels of their desire to and the action of worship. It says that um, they, when they found Jesus, they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they offered to him, likely, um, the, the most important and precious and valuable things that they had. That, that an act of worship for the wise men was not a um, well yeah I don't ah, I don't know what I got in my wallet I think I got a couple receipts left and uh, I might have a little bit of extra here for the wise for the for the wise men the the act of worship for them was not a um, giving of whatever is left over at the end of my whatever the end of my day don't worry, Jesus. You're going to get everything that I've got left after I take care of everything else. Like what? Like my kids. Like my job. Like my house. Like my this. Like my that. And if, man, if I can keep my eyes open, I tell you what, Jesus, you and me, good five, ten, twenty minutes before Grey's Anatomy comes on, then we're like, Guilty. Right? But it's like the example of the wise men was um, uh, an example of like pursuing God in worship and then um, at, the, at the place of worship offering to God um, the best I had, as much as I could, uh, the most precious of my gifts, the most precious of my resources, gold, frankincense, Myrrh, all precious, precious, precious things. And it was the heart 
and the attitude of foreigners who brought the most precious resources that they had, laid them at the feet of Jesus. It was like that act of worship that opened the door to them having like instant direct line and connection with God himself. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Like, that's pretty like, like direct line to God. Like perfect communication. Not doubting at all. Like, no, jeez, don't go back that way. We're going to go this way. And they did that. Now what opened the door for, him, for them to have that kind of relationship or connection with God? It was an attitude of worship. It was an attitude of, I give you my best, Lord. Not what's left over, but whatever you can have. Like, whatever I have, it's yours. You know what another word for that is? Lordship. It's not mine. It's not mine. It's not mine. It's not my time. They're not my kids. It's not my job. They're not my resources. This is not my life. Lord, it is yours. It is yours. It is yours. I give you the first. I give you the best. I give you everything I have. My, my sole purpose in life is to, is to follow the signs to the place of worship. And then when I get there, I'm going to bow down and I am going to worship. And in that, like God's like, holy cow, you're honoring me. Like in every step, the wise men were like, honor, 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 honor. And God's like, all right, I'm going to speak to you. And I'm going to speak to you. And I'm going to speak to you. And I'm going to speak to you. And, and you're going to know me in a real, real, real way. Because God honors it when we take the small things that he's given to us, like our job and our home and our relationships and our children and when we honor him by getting off of the throne and letting him sit in the place where he deserves to be it's like then he gives us the great things but we're, our eyes are always so fixed on the good things that we think that they're great when if we just realize that the good things that God gives us are tools for us to experience the great things that he has for us. My, uh, my prayer uh, for you, for myself, uh, for us, is that um, we would come to a place, and everyone comes to this place via a different route. And your story is going to be different than mine. It's going to be different than the person standing next to you but there's a lot of times where we don't get to the place of relinquishing lordship of our lives over to Jesus unless he hits us in the head with a two by four like until life until the rug is like completely dragged out from underneath us right it's like slipping out a banana peel and all like life is destroyed and life is over and like life has been been ruined it's Sometimes that's what it takes, right? That's what it takes for us to realize that, man, every time I've tried to control the trajectory of life, my relationships, my resources, my gifts, 
everything about who I am. Every time I try to control it, it fails. It destructs. It destroys. And sometimes it takes moments. Sometimes it takes days. And sometimes it takes years or even generations. But anything and everything that you try to sit on the throne of in your life will eventually deteriorate and be destroyed. It will crumble away. And you'll be left with nothing. And so sometimes, that's what we need in order to like come to our sense of, senses of who's actually sitting on the throne. And, and if that's what we need, a lot of times that's what God lets happen. But others of us, um, I'm, I'm one of these, like, I don't have this like amazing road to Damascus testimony experience of surrendering my life to, to the Lord, but I don't know why my story is the way, the way that it is, but like I learned outside of horrible pain and circumstance that lordship to Jesus. And I don't know where you are I don't, and I don't know if you feel like the rug is starting to slip or if you're like, Bleh. but what I do know is um, the more tightly we hold onto the rug, wanting to keep control, the more it hurts when it comes out. And, um, and so I've always been, been one to say like, well, why don't we do a preemptive strike against my Lord, um, against my own lordship? Why don't, why don't we do a preemptive strike against me being the captain of my own ship? And so that's what I want to pray over you um, this morning, is that God in his mercy would move your heart to surrender your life, your lordship, your children, your job, your marriage, your relationship to him. And see how the surrender of lordship changes everything. Let me pray for you, please.